Of words. I'm Scott Jones. And I'm Bill Bohr, and this will be our last podcast for 2016. Did we say that about the last podcast we did? We, did, we always are saying that. <laughs> well, we, it's because we, we live expectantly. Yes, where people, if you're not thoroughly eschatological, what are you doing with your life? I wish we'd all been ready. I just sang because you have a new board, and I just want to hear myself sound. It sounds pretty good, right? Yeah. We, ha- we are working with a ProSonus Bluetube. Two, so it's got two tubes. I'm getting the band back together. We're gonna be down here recording. I found out that um, uh, one old band, my one band I was part of, at uh, one of the, the keyboardists is a aeronautical engineer for NASA, and uh, one other guy is a big financier, and then there's me. Yeah, uh, to, to round out the group, <laughs> rounding out the group. Ringo, our drummer, is is uh, still in Chambersburg. Good guy. So, one other thing before we get to our always serious and uh, deep conversation. Today is the 100th anniversary of the murder of Rasputin. And, uh, you know, they they shot him. No, they poisoned him. They shot him. And they threw him into the frozen river. And the autopsy said that he drowned. (laughs) So... (laughs) Well, that was one uh, tough guy. Yeah, Rasputin. Who, who, who is Rasputin today? If you had to pick one person. Hmm. Well, I mean, okay, so we have a kind of crazy mystic Russian monk. Right. Who would who would that be? That would be, we don't, like. Steve Bannon? Nah, dude, that's giving Steve Bannon a lot of credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's not nearly as like. Carl Rove, the architect. That would have been a no, previous. again, you can't have a ham head. Like, excuse me, Stephen Colbert when he would do jokes about. Carl Rove would just put a ham out with glasses, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a the architect. Well, maybe we should. I, I don't see. I, I'm done. Then I don't know who who would be who would be Rasputin today. I mean, do we have any like warrior Buddhist monks or something? I mean, we. I feel like you'd need like a warrior religion. Well, I was trying to think who would be Trump's Rasputin because he's coming to power. Jerry Falwell Jr. No, that's not a, mystical. No, no, no. All right. Well, that's one we'll throw out to you. If you can, who is, who's going to be the Rasputin of the Trump administration? Uh, we'll do a contest. Uh, the best suggestion will get a free copy of my band's new CD once we make it. Exactly. Here we go. And, and you got to, like, this is like school. I mean, when you give the answer, like, give, like, a reason or two. Right, I mean, right. give give concrete suggestions because as to there's, why. There's no grade inflation in New Persuasive Words. No, no. no. You start with, if you get it, you start with a C and work up. <laughs> you don't start with an A and then no, lose points. No, yeah. George Bush Jr. and John Kerry both had 2.0 grade point averages. That was when they had the gentleman C, when everybody got Cs. Yeah, yeah. Two guys, this is how non-oligarchical we are. In that year, you had two guys with the same grade point average from Yale that were members of the same secret society running for president in both parties. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's not, it's him. Spreading the wealth, spreading the wealth. And Gary Trudeau was down the hall. Gary Trudeau. Oh, the name. Doonesbury. Isn't isn't his Gary Trudeau and he the guy does? does, Oh, I was thinking, uh, what's who's the Trudeau that everybody loves now, the prime minister? Of Canada. I forget his first name. Good looking guy. I should find out, particularly if I'm. If you move. Yeah, yeah. Well, we were going to talk today about you are immersed right now in studies of. Of the 19th century. The 19th century, which is one of my favorites. Although I tend to like. 
continental stuff. I'm actually reading a lot on the 19th century mission movements. All right. Well, it was those were good years for for missionaries. Yeah, it's sometimes. an interesting. It's interesting. You know, you also see kind of the. It's what's interesting to me is also, also um, the trajectory. So things that still were being done in churches when I was a kid, um, the women's mission group and things like that. You you see, you know, where they began in the 19th century, but uh, a lot of where we're at now, actually, in this the the the. Um, what do I want to say? The topography or the geography of what's the going religious on? landscape, that's so to speak. I, could, that's, I, went, I, I missed all that. I missed the easy one. I went for topography instead of landscape. But yeah, I think uh, a lot of it can uh, can be looked at through the lenses of probably the first great theological controversy in North America, which is whether or not grape juice or real wine can be used. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually, Welch was a Methodist. Who like because of temperance came up with he invented unfermented grape juice just to avoid a dominical command. Yeah, one of the, one of the, if you ever want a, a textbook case of grace collapsing into law and a good idea becoming a uh, oppressive thing, follow the uh, whole how temperance became abstinence. It's a very fascinating. Uh, it's a big part of 19th century Christianity. It's one thing both liberals and conservatives could agree upon in 1918. Machen, though, was not not Machen. No, Machen marched to a, a drum of his own beating. <laughs> I was, I'm thinking about that moment in the first episode of Boardwalk Empire when Nookie Thompson speaks to the women's temple. <laughs> yeah, well, we're going to clean up these streets. And he goes back to all the guys in his hotel suite at his office. We're going to make so much <laughs> money from this. <laughs> yeah, no. That's actually, that's actually, uh, uh, it's, it's funny how... Uh, it's not a new story of political and economic forces uh, using goodwilled or goodwilled sometimes goodwilled uninformed religious people to to get to, get towards where they're going, and uh, that 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 story continues to play out. So we were thinking. So what's the first? The first? Were you talking old light, new light? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I mean, there might be something earlier, but the one that really I actually think, though, yes, you're right, and I actually think your insight here is. In, I was going to say insightful, but I mean, that seems repetitive, but I, I think this is important in, the, in that I think normally when today, when we think of American religious history, we focus so much in on the fundamentalist modernist controversy or the earliest 20th century when we're talking about evolution and the fundamentals and miracles. And I think you're absolutely right. I think the stage for that was set a long time it ago. Was, and was. actually... The people that were fighting that were largely new light people. So it was new light versus new light children. It was not. So I, so this is actually, if you care about American religious history, this, I think, what Bill's saying here, I think is, is one of the keys to a fuller understanding of it. Because once you understand the, the basics of this controversy, you, you see how it set the table for most of what we think of, at least in Christian circles about but, yeah, how and, things shake out. And you and I, we've, we, we, we won't name any names, but you and I have been following the various sundry uh, uh, debates, or if you want to call them debates, and um, jogging among evangelicals and, you know, people. You can name names if you want. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to stop. But I, I actually, I, I, you know, it's funny. I think they're whistling in the dark. I think because it's foundationally, it goes. It goes back to this controversy, one that was 
it was interesting. It was never, it was never really resolved. And it, it, like you said, it, it spurred all kinds of different dynamics. So basically what we're talking about here, I mean, the, the terms are first used during the first great awakening, which spread through the British North American colonies in the middle of the 18th century uh, in a faithful narrative of the surprising work of God. Great title by Jonathan Edwards, which was written in 1737. He talked about his congregants' vivid experiences with grace as causing a new light in their perspective on sin and atonement. And uh, based, so you have people that sort of didn't have this new light, did weren't recipients of this revivalistic religious awakening. They were the old lights or, well, I don't know why they just didn't call them the no lights, but you know, like, <laughs> but they were the old, so the old light, the old truth, which is a lot more rooted in the continental reformation and traditional, more traditional Christian practice and understanding comes up against something that it's fair to say, right. It's a little more individualistic, a lot more enthusiastic in in the technical sense of the word in enthusiasm. It's just funny because enthusiasm is always a good, just good description right now. So enthusiastic, but back then enthusiasm was oftentimes you were, you were bad. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I don't know how deep we want to get into this. Uh, I, I mean, it's part of the residue, the unsatisfactory place that Calvin and it leaves the idea of how do you take comfort in the doctrine of election? And so part of it was this idea of, well, one, you just, you could always just accept, you know, uh, son, are you willing to be damned for the glory of God? <laughs> yeah, there's a story about that one kid who's, right. who's on the floor of the Presbyterian. He says, son, would you be willing to be damned for the glory of God? I said, not just me, but I'd be willing that this whole Presbytery be, be damned for God's glory. <laughs> So there's that, you know, and, and Calvin seemed to take comfort in that. It's in the hands of God. But then there were there's also some sections in Calvin, and this got picked up by the Pietist and others, where this idea of consolation or this idea of experiential faith that you not only had trusted, not only we had we had did a podcast about this earlier. Yeah, if yeah, it's if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to that. What, it, what, what I forget what we called it. I forget what episode that was. We'll put it in the show notes. But we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, we'll but make a link to it. So do I trust in the work of Christ or do I trust in my faith in the work of Christ? Right. And there became this uh, movement of experiential faith. Now, it, you know, there, it's interesting that uh, George Whitfield, who was a part, an early part of the Methodist movement um, with Wesley, I mean, they didn't, they split eventually. At Wesley's pushing him out because of Calvinism versus Arminianism. But part of it was this idea of how do I know if I'm elect? Um, now, Edwards had critics on from the from the orthodox end, okay, so from kind of scholastic Calvinist. His great the reason he wrote that work though was also in response to the growing rationalism that would that would eventually become the Unitarians and the Universalists. So the idea that they were suspicious of this kind of experientialism. So it was an interesting that, that, that he was fighting a two-front war there and people questioning this great awakening. And never fight a land war in Asia. <laughs> At George Whitfield, when he, when basically Whitfield was preaching all over the country and some people who were congregationalists who'd been converted, so to speak, under his preaching. I mean, they were nominal, maybe weren't going to church, but say, well, that's my church, but never went. They left that connection to become New Light Baptists when they found that there's no evidence really for infant baptism. 
in the apostolic church and probably other reasons. But so when Whitfield was told of this development, he quipped that he was glad to hear about the fervent faith of his followers, but regretted that so many of his chickens had become ducks. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't, no, I don't, I mean, I guess is a chick, a duck is worse than a chicken. I don't, I just think don't push. I think don't. I mean, if someone sat down and served you duck, right? Like, I don't have duck than chicken, but I mean, it just seems like a higher end. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's probably not the way it was thought of. Then he used to stay with Ben Franklin. We come to Philadelphia, and Ben Franklin, he thought like the masses needed this. Ben Franklin didn't need it. He loved Whitfield. He liked. To, he, he keeps the masses, keeps the religion, kind of. He keeps it's good for it's good for the people, for the folks. And he said that man could make you weep. Just by saying Mesopotamia. Yeah, his famous quote. Yeah. So, uh, but but it's interesting. It, it, it's a kind of, sometimes I think it's confusing to follow old light, new light, because particularly, for instance, let's say you're an evangelical, because sometimes your position, the, the positions of an evangelical are on the new light side of things. Well, I think they're mostly on the new light side of things. Well, I guess what we call an experiential evangelical. Now, if you're a, uh, if you're one of those, uh, uh, card-carrying Calvinist, then you're not always so comfortable with the new light. Well, I think a lot of them, though, I, I think the group of the sort of, who some people, some of our friends call the neo-reformed. Uh, but these, basically, you know, you're talking about guys who get into like a, a, a Calvinistic understanding of salvation. It's all God. It's all God's job. It's all God's engineering of things, which is something, you know, it's Lutheran, it's Augustinian. I mean, it's not unique to Calvin. But, the, but then they really tend to be in their understanding of church and other things, much more like American and contemporary, you know, they're much more new light types. I mean, I think even they are probably, if we had to like draw a line, I like drawing lines. We're drawing one right now. Uh, Yeah. I mean, they're on exactly right here. So I think they're probably on that side or even if they're on the other side, they're really close. It's, It's sort of like you could, you could live if you're in France, right? You, you could live in France and be really close to Spain are really close to Germany. And, you know, it's sort of that thing. Like, even people that are on the old, if they're old light-ish at all in their temperament, they're living right on the border (laughs) so they can see and check in. Uh, Well, that's why I think part of that is, I mean, I think um, because, all right, because experiential Christianity is associated with with new light, uh, it's one of the reasons I think Newman one time said that uh, the children of Roman Catholics become apostates. The children of evangelicals become liberals. Yeah, it's, there you go. And I think it's interesting, you know, I was talking to a friend um, about his kind of, uh, and this is a, I mean, this guy's a card-carrying evangelical in the full senses of all the, all the words, all the definition. Is there a card in evangelical? Is there? Yeah, there is not. I just mean, it's, it's always, yeah, but if there was a card. He would have it. He would have it. And I was just talking to him about the election and I was just kind of curious, all right, how, I mean, the seventy or whatever seventy percent of evangelicals voted for Trump, something like that. Oh, I thought I thought it was eight. It wasn't closer to eighty. Oh, really? All right. Anyway, I thought it was eight, over eighty. Anyway, and I just asked, you know, I asked him that question because, for instance, Mormons really struggled with Trump around the core character issue and things like that. Things. And, and Trump doesn't even drink. Yeah, but <laughs> so that's one thing. I, <laughs> yeah, um, but. Well, that's 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 the least of their concerns about him. <laughs> just saying, I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Yeah, but um, and he said with the people he talked about, there was just a total disconnect. They just uh, he said they the terms they hated 
the Democratic Party. They hated Hillary Clinton. Uh, There's something about the person of Trump that appealed to them. And he said their faith really never never became part of their decision-making process. And we were just talking about that's a very different way than we were would have been reared, uh, even in the fundamentalist circles that that I uh, uh, you know was uh, reared in as a as a as a child and as an early adolescent. Um, they, they surely those fundamentalists would have had a, had a lot of trouble with Hillary Clinton. But the criteria they used, they would have had a lot of problems with Donald Trump as well. But that, you know, the the experience of Donald Trump, uh, their experiential approach to their voting, uh, drove the machine. You know, at least that's how that's how he how he uh, the people he talked to. That's what he came away from with. Let me just say, I was Christmas shopping uh, Christmas Eve, maybe or the day before. Yeah, I think it was Christmas Eve, which is I saw this meme on Facebook, December twenty second. It was a guy with a bunch of shopping bags was the picture. It says, two days, in two days, all the guys start their shopping. <laughs> so I was in Target for one of my stops and bought something for, well, I can say no, I bought my wife a set of Bluetooth headphones, which there's Skull Candy. And I, I'm, not, I'm not, we're not getting any endorsement money from Skull Candy. They're excellent though. I, I, for the money, I couldn't believe how great they are. But as the woman at the electronics counter at Target bagged my stuff and you know we i made a joke about the credit card machine and she said merry christmas so there you go dude i mean trump said if they would say and target was one of those early companies that was saying happy holidays now i got merry christmas so what that is worth i don't know but it happens okay let me try and experiment by the way can i say your voice sounds incredible right now like i feel like i could i just i don't know i want you to read like um a, a, like a inspirational tale or something. Maybe we can start doing books on tape. That could be a side business for us. It is. Sarah Conant actually might come here to record her audio book. Oh. That'd be fun. Maybe maybe we'll have her as a guest. But you told me you never thought she and I should be in the same room together. It may be good or bad. I don't know. It's like Ghostbusters where you cross the stream. (laughs) I don't know know if it's good or bad. It'd be interesting. So there's a book called, the title is, it was written... I, don't, you, I know you know this book. I, I don't know when it was uh, when it was written though. Against the Protestant Gnostics. And oh, it's yeah, Phil, Philip J. Lee. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember when it was written. It was. It's maybe been at least ten years ago. Yeah, it's it's been a little while ago. And he says he has these categories of Gnosticism on the one hand and traditional orthodoxy, starting with you know, Irenaeus on. I mean, like anything's in the New Testament too. But and can you just do a preamble because I think it might be helpful to tie. It. You're, we're going the Gnostic because on some levels we think the new light is on that continuum. Yeah, if we're doing continuums, and so and Philip Lee does, and I think he makes some, again, when you're making topologies, you're always right. making judgments that are less nuanced than reality. But, you know, you have to do these to get a gestalt, you know, to get the gestalt well, of the thing. Right, and if there was a center point on, if, you know, extreme Gnosticism is the far side of one point, both the Gospel of John and some of Paul would be left of the center point. Yeah, I mean, it parts, yeah. Part, I, know, yeah. Not, I mean, that's, you know, that's... I is mean, it pretentious that I said gestalt? No, no, right. no, we're, yeah, not any more than we're pretentious in other ways. So he says on one Your hand... Your new glasses are pretentious a little bit. They're, they're, dude, they're amazing. <laughs> they're amazing. Uh, so he says that basically Gnosticism, uh, one of its... Uh, its basic theological anthropology is an alienated humanity... Versus in orthodoxy, you have a fallen humanity, but still part of a good creation. So the Gnostics, the alienated right. humanity, is because 
they are that, that, that there's really the creator of this world is not the same as the redeemer. Right. So there's a better world. And Benson Shelton, who was a guest on the Monacan cast and who's one of our listeners, he actually, part of his pilgrimage, he almost became a Gnostic. He went to the Gnostic Ecclesia in LA. He went to the head guy, the bishop read his books. He's so, uh, you and know, was he like Augustine once he met the head guy? He was dissolution. Yeah, he did. That he became, it, it, led to, it led to a strict path to orthodoxy. That's, that's what happened. To, that's that's uh, Augustine's. Uh, Good for, for you, Ben, if you're listening. You and, and St. Augustine have uh, exactly similar paths. He's also a black belt in Kung Fu. Huh. So there you go. I mean, he's a really good guy. And he says the second characteristic of Gnosticism is, as opposed to, it's basically knowledge that saves versus orthodoxy is knowledge of mighty acts. Uh-huh. So it's not, it's, it, it, it's this sort of special knowledge about yourself, about metaphysical mysteries that saves you, as, as opposed to knowledge of things done on your behalf by the God of Israel climaxing in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the third thing he says is salvation through escape versus salvation through pilgrimage. So, so it's escape from this reality versus a sense that we're on a pilgrim, a pilgrim journey to another city that, that the foundations of which will be this creation, a renewed creation, the knowledge of self versus the believing community. Oh yeah. And a spiritual elite versus ordinary people. And his last characteristic is on the one hand, Gnosticism is about selective syncretism versus the particularity of orthodoxy. Thinks orthodoxy always clings tenaciously to things like the Hebrew Bible, the story of Israel, the particularity of certain events in history, as opposed to Gnostic, the Gnostic tendency to sort of absorb everything into the ocean of being or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, that's really interesting. One of the things that you were saying that, you know, why fundamentalism is a Gnostic system is because of its need for certainty. Yeah, 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 and and yeah. and, and it, it's interesting sometimes. Well, I think American fundamentalism is agnostic, is agnostic in many ways. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, it's very interesting that you know he. And this is a book that maybe we'll talk about this book down the road or something. Well, I think it's a really important idea because, um, on, on one level, and, and again, this is why balance is so important. Um, you and I, but both. Um, we believe it, we've experienced it, we preach it, um, that Christianity is a living relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So there, it's a rela- it, is a re- it is a relationship. And so um, sometimes there's experiential dimensions to that, sometimes there's not. It, it's, uh, in that way, it's like any kind of love-commitment relationship. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a commitment and relationship regardless of what you're feeling about it. And, and I think, you know, it's interesting when you talk about it because— Knowledge of salvation is one thing. That that would be the Gnostic kind of way of approaching yeah. it. But the idea that the eschatological goal that we will know as we are known. Yeah, yeah. And so there's a sense where it's—and so that's why that you can talk about there's Gnosticizing tendencies in orthodoxy or whatever, because it's not that knowledge isn't important. It's just in a different category. Right, right. And I think that that's right. It's, it's knowledge of these things done— on your behalf. I mean, there's a sense in which Jesus is not just a teacher, but a redeemer. You know, that we don't need good advice. We need good news. Right. But, that, but I'm talking about in terms of the I-thou relationship one can have with the divine. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So that, that's yeah. what I mean. In other words, there's, there's, and so. That's and, what, and that's one of, it's based on divine condescension 
not human will to power, spiritual athleticism, ascension. Like it, it it's no, it has nothing. Yeah. It, it, it might be. I mean, it's also a human ascension because we ascend with Christ. Right. Exactly. It's, it's, it, again, it's, that's it's, the it's mighty it's, acts. It's in yeah. by with through. Absolutely. Yeah. You you don't get that. <laughs> it's not unmitigated. In other words, right. It's always in Christ, by Christ, with Christ, through Christ. Matter of fact, when I'm doing the the Eucharistic liturgy, I emphasize the prepositions. My people probably think I'm crazy, but you should do it with this sounds. I should bring this to your church some week and just see, it would be so, but I was ready to like lift up a cup when you were saying in Christ, I wanted you to chat and in Christ within the unity of the spirit. But, you know, but to me, I, I, every time I, I, I pray that it, I'm, I'm reminded it's a way of affirming that all that we have and we have everything. I mean, that's the other thing. So to me, Gnosticism, uh, as well as, uh, you know, evangelicalism, fundamental, they're all shortcuts. Liberalism is a shortcut as well. It's a different Absolutely. kind of shortcut. Um, and that's what's partially, in some levels, sad to me because even though I don't, you know, uh, I lost my evangelical decoder ring, so I don't consider myself a part of that uh, movement anymore. Uh, <laughs> okay, at least it's better than card carrying. Well, you told me the card. I tried to come up with something I like different. That. Yeah, but. Um, but I kind of grieved to me what this last election, um, the last election symbolizes to me that American evangelicalism has become uh, the same as what's wrong with liberal American Christianity, that any kind of particularity about the Lordship of Christ doesn't matter. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because there's a book by D.G. Hart called The Lost Soul of American Protestantism, which is in a really interesting series of books called some, it's the... Um, like the new traditions or something, or it's a very, like Harawas is one of the editors of this series. It's, it's very interesting. He basically says that if you're an old, old lighter type, if you're somebody that's kind of confessional Protestant Augustinian, you're not a culture warrior, you're a pilgrim versus crusader sort of person. There's no spot for you because he thinks both the left and right in American Christianity are all new light, all or nothing, change the world, individualistically reductive at points. Like he, he's basically, the, this is why he thinks the fundamentalist modernist lens for viewing where we are is inadequate because th- th- that's st- that's already after the new light has kind of eclipsed right. the old light. And so I agree. You know, it's it's actually Edwards might have been the only person who could keep it in tension. Yeah, and his own family members couldn't. Yeah. And even Whitfield too. I mean, these are people that yeah, Whitfield, yeah. but that, yeah. And I think it's 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 interesting too. I mean, I'm I'm studying Dutch Calvinism right now, uh, and uh, <laughs> it's it's, it's Torquemada. It's uh, how many more volumes of reading this till you convert? <laughs> um, but it was funny. There were there were um, there were both there were there were Dutch uh, Reformed churches when the Great Enlightenment was was happening. Prayed. Uh, Lord, give us revival, but just not like it's happening in New York. <laughs> uh, but I do think, to me, it's it's a problematic because <clears throat> I, you know, I, I don't know which which light uh, I, I'm. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I'm on the taste greater, less filling uh, debate about this. Uh, you don't remember that beer commercial? Oh yeah, Mil- Bud Light takes. <laughs> Why do we like? Because it? it tastes great. No, because it's less filling. Yeah, uh, but uh, and. Uh, um, no, but it was funny because there was a there was a the um, pro gay ordination movement in the Presbyterian Church was called the More Light Movement, and someone uh, 
Someone asked me, where are you on that position? I said, I'm, I'm more on the taste great. <laughs> <laughs> and like so much of those debates, they didn't laugh. They were, they were kind of a humorless, humorous, humorless bunch. And I think there is a sense in which, I mean, the, I mean, the truth in the New Light stuff, right, is, is uh, Tim Keller has written a couple piece, pieces targeted mostly to Presbyterians and Reformed people. But I think it probably, it accurately describes, at least among evangelicals, and maybe wider, like the religious landscape that we spoke of earlier. He said, you've got your kind of cultural transformationalists. And these are people for whom the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom. And you have it, you know, let's remake society. There's right-wing forms of it. There's left-wing centers. He says, then you've got your doctrinalists. And for the doctrinalists, the Christianity is all about the doctrines of atonement and justification and and Christology and things. And so he's like, basically, if you were grew up in InterVarsity Crusade, Young Life, you were going, you know, it, there was this okay, kind of thing. When, when you say crusade, don't say— Campus young, crusade, yeah. Okay. Don't say Young Life right after that. Right, right. Give okay. me a little page. Youth give for me, Christ, let's be inclusive. Intervar- yeah. give me, give me a, at least give me some space between exactly. the two. And then he says there's the devotionalists, and for them, this is about the, the free grace and adoption that you find in Christ. You know, they love the book of Galatians, you know, and he says, you know, the, the, the devotionalists, the new lighters tend to be, maybe their primary orientation is this kind of devotionalist. And he says, you need that because it, it, oftentimes Christianity can become moribund and it can forget the radical nature of the liberative love of God and it can kind of devolve into the worst of institutional life. He says they all need each other, you know, because you wind up like, he says, you know, it's interesting that his case study was, look at Galatians. Like, how do you preach Galatians? He says, you can preach it starting with any of the perspectives, as long as you get to the other ones. Like, you could talk about racism and then talk about how do you overcome it? Well, it's the doctrinalist. It's, it's, It's this unique saving of Christ. Well, how do you know it's taken root? Well, all racism is just some need to oppress somebody else to lift up your own identity. And mm-hmm. when you're free in Christ, this is, you know, we'll think about how, how do you feel about someone from another race marrying your daughter? And there, you know, how liber- or you could start right. with the free freedom of Christ. Where does it come, you know, and, and what are the fruits? So I think that those things, this is my attempted sort of apology for the, the truth in the new light. Like, I mean, it, like anything, yeah. it can kind of, it can get one of the stools if it takes over, the stool falls over. But there is a, a truth to it that is important. Whether well, they're scholastic orthodoxy, whatever version it is, uh, whether it's medieval Catholicism or uh, 17th century Calvinism, um, or for that matter, 20th century institutional religious liberalism. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it becomes, it becomes a hammer. Yeah. And the very uh, good religious impulses that maybe initially started it. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, for every Aquinas, you go down the road, you get an inquisitor. Yeah. Because uh, that, that needs to be a t-shirt. Yeah. For every Aquinas, there's an inquisitor. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That's a hashtag. Uh, there's a hashtag. Yeah. Because quick, let's copyright that. But um, yeah, but see that. So I think New Light is one of these things where, that reminds us that it's a living word. It's a living faith. It's an experiential encounter. Uh, it's not just an idea. But uh, the trouble is that um, the history of the new light impulse is that it fails to properly ground itself. Maybe by nature it can't. So Newman, going back to Newman's quote, um, 
I mean, those second great awakeners uh, really were, you know, part of you know the roots of today's evangelicalism, uh, and even the fundamentalist branch of it comes. Can, you can trace that back to the Second Great Awakening and all the theological problems with, say, the Dallas Theological Seminary and other places. All that comes from that kind of experiential faith, as well as a, you know, a Protestant trajectory that ended up proclaiming the death of God. So um, that's that's just the, pr- the problem with that, with uh, experience uh, apart from the historical faith. And let's conclude with the words of Irenaeus. God is light, but unlike any other light we have ever known. Happy New Year, everybody. I wondered so aimless life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. Praise the Lord, I saw the light. I saw the light. Thank you very much, Johnny. Thank you, Carl.